0: Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. There are hundreds of thousands of missing persons in the FBI's database, and that number is still growing. For many people, the method of finding their lost loved ones are as mysterious as their disappearances. Today, I'll be speaking with privacy and information consultant Bob Gelman. We'll discuss some of the questions surrounding the legal and ethical challenges in searching for missing people. But first, WFUV's Rob Palazzolo tells us about one mother's mission to cut down on the bureaucracy and finding missing
1: persons. Hart Island looks peaceful off the shores of the Bronx. As New York City's potters field, it's a graveyard for thousands. Many of these people had no family to bury them. Lamont Dotton was one of the many lost people laid to rest on Hart Island. But he did have a family. The problem was they didn't even know he was buried there. When Doughton went missing in Queens on October 18, 1995, his mother, Dr. Arnita Fowler, began searching. She put up flyers, scoured the area where he was last seen, and called the police.
0: But what I didn't want to do is I could not rest without knowing where my son was, and
1: I just kept looking. But Fowler says talking with the police was difficult. She says the police initially wouldn't file a missing persons report because her son was 21, a legal adult. Fowler was finally able to find an officer willing to take a report on November 13th. She thought this meant she would find her son soon, but days stretched into weeks, weeks into months, and months turned into years. She began to feel despair.
0: There were days I literally laid on my mom's bed and just said, Lord, you might as well
1: just take me now because there is just no way I could live not knowing. Meanwhile, on October 24th of 95, a body was pulled out of the East River. The FBI correctly identified it as Lamont Dotton's, but burial records show that this body was incorrectly listed as an unidentified 30-year-old. According to a spokesperson for the New York City Medical Examiner, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner works cooperatively with NYPD to share information about unidentified persons who may indeed have been reported as missing. That said, the medical examiner and the police should have been communicating, and the police should have notified Fowler and her family, but for reasons that are still unclear, that didn't happen. The NYPD did not respond to my request for comment. On February 13, 1996, Doughton's body was removed from the morgue. It was placed in a simple pine box and buried without ceremony on Hart Island. The box was marked, Unknown. It was four years later that Fowler finally found out what happened. She says she discovered others have suffered the same fate as her son. She resolved to do something.
0: It wasn't until I walked on the pulpit at my son's funeral that I pledged this battle. I know they say pick your battles, and this was the one I was going to pick.
1: New York State Assemblyman William Scarborough heard her story. He says he was appalled.
2: To have a situation where people turn up missing and family just go for years with grief and uncertainty is not a good system.
1: Scarborough's bill would try to fix the communication breakdown that left Fowler's son unclaimed in the morgue. Law enforcement would also be compelled to search for missing adults the same way they search for missing children. But Scarborough says he's run into opposition. He says some people in law enforcement worry the bill will increase their workload too much. Opponents also say when an adult goes missing, that person must have made the choice by their own free will. They say those people don't want to be found. Melinda Hunt is the head of the Hart Island Project, a nonprofit that publishes records of burials on Hart Island. Hunt says Lamont Dotton is not the only person who got lost in the bureaucracy. The various city agencies, um, each one does their little part, but they're often not aware of what the job of the other agency is, and so they don't instruct people to go talk to so-and-so at the other agency. Hunt has mixed views on the bill. She applauds efforts to increase transparency, but she worries the bill is too vague. And the most important piece of advice for families is missing. Go to the medical examiner's office. Show up early and don't leave. Somebody will eventually help you. Still, Fowler says she's willing to fight against what she sees as an unjust system. Love has no age limit. So what are we doing? And what are we waiting for? The bill has been proposed every legislative session since 2002, each time it's failed to pass. Lamont Doughton was able to be returned to his family, but many of the people buried on Hart Island remain unknown. I'm Rob Palazzolo, WFUV News.
0: Now I'm joined by phone with Bob Gelman in Washington, D.C. He's a privacy and information consultant. He also co-authored a report called Privacy and Missing Persons After Natural Disasters. So, Bob, can you give me a quick overview of your part in co-authoring the report, Privacy and Missing Persons After Natural Disasters?
2: Well, the report came about because there is a group called the Missing Persons Community of Interest, which coordinates activities very loosely among a variety of organizations that are actively involved in collecting and disseminating missing persons information. And somebody sent me to them and said they need some privacy help. And so I volunteered, and one thing led to another, and there was funding for a formal report. Uh, that came through Fordham Law School, and that's how the report evolved. What were some of the key points of the report? Well, the problem that the report addresses really is how can a missing persons organization process personal data about missing persons in an after a natural disaster? And the question for any organization, and it doesn't matter who you are really or where you are, is what can you do to process personal information. It could be a government agency we're talking about. It could be a website. It doesn't matter what organization. Today, privacy is such that you have to spend time and think about how is it we're going to process personal information. And it's really hard for missing persons organizations.
0: So explain what the process would be for uh, an organization or what advice you had.
2: Missing persons organizations um, arise after natural disasters. They, they function. They know what they're doing, but. They come to life when there's a natural disaster that needs their services, and they begin to collect and disseminate personal information. And the question is, okay, how can you do that? Um, In the United States, there really are very few restrictions on what you can do with personal information. There are a few scattered privacy laws that cover credit reporting agencies and government agencies and some other players. But for the most part, there really aren't any laws that say you can or you can't do something. That's not true in the rest of the world. If you want to collect, use, disclose, and generally process personal information, you can't just, in Europe at least, you just can't stand up and do it. You have like to you can find, in the U.S. Yeah, like you can in the U.S. The U.S., there really are very few general controls on what people can do. And so in the United States, somebody who wants to process missing persons organizations can do what they want. They can collect the information. They can disseminate it as they please. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's the rule. In Europe, you need a lawful reason to process information. You can't just start collecting information about individuals and passing it out to people um, that you want to give it to. You have to have a legal basis for doing so.
0: So, Bob, that means that here in the U.S., it might be a little easier in a disaster to, let's say, disseminate names of people who might be missing or lost to their family members. But that information could also, down the line, come back to haunt them if it's used in a way that was never intended. Is that correct?
2: Well, that can always happen when you collect personal information. Information is a real asset. It has a value um, and it can be used for good and for evil, just like anything else. So, When you have information, you have to worry about what the rules are that you're going to follow. They may just be your own rules, because in the United States, there's often no law. So you have to make some decisions. In most of the rest of the world, you have to follow the law. You have to have a legitimate basis for processing the data. And you can only use it and disclose it and generally process it in accordance with law.
0: So what are some of the risks for sharing this information?
2: Well, the risks, of course, are to the individual that the information may be misused. But even basic processing of information, collecting information on people, presents risks to them regardless of how it's used. Once the information is collected and compiled, it can always be used in some new way. It can be obtained by the police. It can be obtained by someone who's a private litigant. Um, It can be used in some way that was not foreseen uh, in a way that will harm somebody or not even a matter of harm that they didn't want. I may not want someone to know uh, something about my health condition. That may be my right to withhold that information or to see to it that it's not processed by somebody else without my approval.
0: But can that change in case of a natural disaster, in case you are uh, in a natural disaster, can that type of information change here in the U.S.
2: as opposed to overseas? Well, in the U.S., since there really aren't any rules for the most part, Information can be processed or not um, as a missing persons organization chooses to do so. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that they're exempt from any responsibility. Anyone who collects personal information uh, obtains with that information some degree of responsibility with respect to the data subject. That may not be a legal responsibility here in the U.S., but it's a moral one. If you're collecting information about people, you should use it appropriately, and in some way that doesn't harm somebody else.
0: So, Bob, can you give me examples or scenarios, particularly how other countries use these rules or possibly misuse these rules when it comes to disseminating information after a natural disaster?
2: Well, it's not a matter of of misusing. The question is, what's the legal basis for doing the missing person's work? What is the legal basis for collecting the information about people who are missing and then disseminating that information to appropriate people like their relatives? Um, you know, one of, the, one of the data protection officials that we worked with on this report wrote in describing missing persons' efforts, he said, that it's essential in the cause of common humanity. When you hear that there's a disaster in a city where you have a relative or a friend You become very anxious, and you want to know what happened to that person. That's just an ordinary human response, and that's what these missing persons organizations are trying to deal with. People want information. It's hard to get, and the missing persons organizations have some ability to collect information and make it available. So that's the background here. Um, we We are serving the cause of common humanity, if you will, in trying to meet a need for information. And the question in Europe and in much of the rest of the world is, how can you do that legally? And we think that there is a legal basis for processing personal information under European standards. Now, we're using Europe as an example here. Much of the rest of the world, uh, about 100 countries, have what we might call modern comprehensive privacy laws. Europe has sort of been the policy leader here, but there are obviously many other countries that have laws like that. The United States here is very much an outlier in not having a comprehensive privacy law. And the question is, how how do missing persons organizations provide the function that they want to provide and do so legally under privacy laws? That's the question that they face. So, if we look at the standards, um, you can process data if it's in the vital interest of the data subject, and I think it's really clear that you can make an argument that when there is a natural disaster and you're sharing that person's information with a relative or a friend or a loved one, that that is in their vital interest. What's missing here is official recognition from the data protection establishment that natural disasters qualify for that kind of processing.
0: What kind of process has to go through for this official recognition to happen, and should it?
2: Well, we think it should, and, and there are a variety of ways that this could happen. And in order to talk about them, you've got to get into some of the details of the European Data Protection Regulation, which I don't think you want to do, because it gets very messy. But what's needed here, i, I give you an example from New Zealand. Okay. New Zealand had, uh, a couple of years ago, an earthquake in Christchurch, and it was uh, a very devastating earthquake. There were a lot of damage, and a lot of people were killed and injured. And there was a lot of missing persons activity following that. In in New Zealand, which has a data protection law, after the Christchurch earthquake, the next day, the Data Protection Authority, in an amazing, amazing uh, act of sort of bureaucratic endeavor, put out a temporary privacy code and said, here are the rules for processing data in response to this disaster. They relaxed the rules that otherwise would apply. And they said agencies that need to do things with data to service people who have been affected by the earthquake can do so even though pre-existing rules may not have covered it because if there was a disaster and they said the disaster began on the day of the earthquake and they said when it terminated and they said how much gave some idea of how much sharing was allowed and they gave an official recognition of the problem and effectively official authority to do processing that went beyond the ordinary. So that's the kind of recognition that was needed, but you can't always respond that quickly. Um, If you change the facts a little bit, the Data Protection Office in New Zealand, the privacy commissioner there, could have been uh, dysfunctional had the earthquake been in a different place. So you need some kind of statement recognition. There are authorities in Europe that could stand up and say, we think this kind of processing is okay," And that would provide a little better reassurance that what's going on is okay, and would set some rules and some parameters around the processing.
0: So help me understand this part, Bob. So New Zealand had a protection law and they loosened it a little because of a particular disaster. Europe does have the same
2: thing or doesn't? Both Europe and New Zealand have general data protection laws that regulate the processing of personal information. Those laws do not inherently recognize the need to process personal data differently following a natural disaster. When New Zealand had a natural disaster, they instituted a temporary code to permit processing, to loosen the rules, and then they made a permanent code to recognize the need uh, for data processing in natural disasters. Europe hasn't done that. So Europe has data protection rules but they haven't said, here's how those rules should apply following disasters. So that's where the uncertainty comes from in Europe. We're not quite sure that the processing is fully in accord with European law. We think it is, but no one has said that.
0: Would it depend on the natural disaster?
2: Uh, Possibly, Um, although at some level, at some degree of abstraction, a lot of disasters are the same. You have you know, an earthquake, a tornado, um, something of that sort. We're talking about natural disasters. People are affected by this. They're killed, they're wounded. There's been destruction of facilities. People need support, people need food, people need housing. And one of the things that goes along with all of that is personal information is collected and used and redisseminated in support of these activities. And so that's where the privacy question always arises.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm talking with Bob Gelman about the legal hurdles of finding missing persons at home and abroad. So can you give me an example? Let's say there is a particular disaster in one country and a group like the Red Cross might have to gather and disseminate information to family members, let's say. How would that process be different in Europe or overseas, and how would it be different here in the U.S.?
2: Well, um, as a matter of practice, it seems to me that from what I've seen, that groups like the Red Cross, when there is a disaster, groups carry out their missions. Many of these organizations already know what they're doing, and they know how they're doing it, and they just um, begin to connect data and people in in a way that they're familiar with uh, knowing how to do it. The Red Cross is, of course, a classic example of an organization that's been doing this for a long time. Google also does it. They also have a function called Google People Finder that serves the same kind of a purpose. I think basically what's going on is most of these organizations proceed with an assumption that their data processing activities Are legitimate. Most of these organizations have their own policies that reflect current data protection standards to the extent that they can do so. And they carry out their business and they fulfill their mission of connecting people in the disaster area with people outside the disaster area. So I don't think the legal issues are paramount to what they do, but they are there in the background raising uncertainty about how far everyone can go in doing this kind of data processing.
0: So, Bob, why wouldn't someone want their personal information shared if it was in a case where they were in a natural disaster? Well, many people
2: would, and that's understandable. But there are people who have other circumstances, and this is an example that came up with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. There were women who were the victims of domestic violence who did not want their current location revealed because... The people, the, the individuals that were their batterers, if you will, were sometimes police or fire or others who were within the sphere of information sharing that goes on officially. And they didn't want anyone to know where they were unless uh, um, they be found by the wrong people. So that's an example of a class of people that need special protection.
0: And, Bob, you touched on uh, Google People Finder a minute ago. Has social media changed the way privacy issues are handled?
2: Uh, well, of course, in a very general sense, there are many debates about uh, privacy and social media. Google People Finder is, as far as I understand, sort of a non nonprofit service offered by Google that arises when there's a disaster and shares information and then when it deems the disaster to be over and the need to have been fulfilled, it shuts down and it has its own policies and rules about what information it will collect and how it will share that information. And what's interesting about the different missing persons organizations is they have different methods of operation. They have different business models, if you will. Some collect information and make it available to everybody. Some collect information and only make it available to some people. And there are different ways of doing it, and there's not necessarily any right or wrong way of doing it. And each organization... Uh, operates as it sees fit, but what's going on with the missing persons community of interest is they're trying to develop data standards so that information sharing can be more efficient and so that organizations can do a better job of working together rather than having a series of organizations do the same thing. Some of them can work together and share data and see to it that the goal is met in the most efficient way possible.
0: So would you say the market in the United States is sort of open for anyone who could find the best system? Uh, well,
2: I mean, there, there are no privacy rules here. We're not talking here about a, a profit-making organization here. This is, no, one's, no one's making a profit doing this, as far as I know. This is all a not-for-profit work. So um, the issue in the United States is more of a voluntary one for organizations. Now, if you're a hospital and you're the focus of a disaster because the victims of a disaster are coming through your hospital, there are rules here, health privacy rules, under a federal regulation called HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. There are regulations that say when you can disclose information about people in the hospital or people you've been treating. And if you're a federal agency, the Privacy Act of 1974 applies. And so the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, has to operate under the terms of the Privacy Act. But most other players are are free to collect and disseminate information as they please.
0: And my simplest question is why? Why here in the U.S.? Why is that okay and it's not okay in other places?
2: Well, um, that's a really complicated question (laughs) because the U.S. does privacy differently than the rest of the world. Privacy advocates say that we do a much worse job of protecting privacy because there are no rules that affect most record keepers. So anyone wants to set up a website and collect personal information about people, they can do it. In Europe, it's not so clear that you can just set up a website and start collecting information about people without giving them notice and without consent and without following some kind of procedures and policies uh, that address privacy. In the U.S., you can do that because there is no law for the most part. And we pay a significant price for not having privacy protections. Which is? Uh, Well, our information is bought and sold every day by companies we've never heard of. Our activities are monitored. When you get online, there are sometimes literally dozens of companies tracking what you're doing online, collecting information about what you're doing, building profiles, selling that information to other companies, um, maybe giving that information to the government There's a lot of information about you held by third parties that you just don't know anything about. You don't have any rights with respect to that information. And your privacy suffers as a result.
0: Are there certain situations that you've experienced where the privacy of someone had to be given up for a greater purpose?
2: Well, that happens all the time. We allow information to be used when there is a public interest to be served. So, for example, We allow medical records to be used for medical research because we all benefit. Now, there are procedures that have to be followed before the records are disclosed. The regulation here is not a simple thing. It's not just, oh, you're doing medical research, you can have everything you want, but you have to go through a series of hoops in order to determine that you're doing legitimate research, that your research protocol meets standards, and that you have some degree of uh, control over what uh, you're doing with the information. So, And the same thing is true when we turn medical records over to the police from time to time. Uh, and there are rules that say when it can be done and what procedures have to be followed. And the same thing is true in a lot of other circumstances where we allow medical records to be used for social benefit. But in all cases, there are standards and procedures that apply. Whether they're good enough or not is a matter of debate. But we do strike balances, and privacy is not secrecy. It doesn't mean no one can have anything Uh, at all or ever use it, means we have to strike a balance between the different interests that are involved.
0: Now, Bob, you've helped a, a number of companies with privacy issues without naming names. What was one of the most challenging situations that you've encountered?
2: I was doing some work for a big company, which purchased a little company. The little company had a privacy policy that said, we will never share your information with anybody ever. Now, that's a very unrealistic promise to make, even in the United States. Why? Um, You never know when someone uh, will come in and and hand you a subpoena and say, turn over this information, or there will be a search warrant or a court order or some circumstance in which you have to turn information over. Another example that came up like that, a company had a policy like that, and they went bankrupt. And when you're in bankruptcy, all of your policies, all of your contracts – can be abrogated by the court. And so the bankrupt company said, we'll never give your information, but it turned out their customer list was their only asset. And if that was sold, then the promise would have been violated. So you can't foresee everything. Laws can change, needs can change. The natural disaster thing is a good example. You have uh, an organization that's functioning, never thought about the need for sharing its records in a natural disaster until the first time it happened. And all of a sudden, It found a new need, a new reason to disclose information that it didn't have before. And if you don't have a privacy policy that covers these circumstances, all of a sudden you don't know what to do. And and, and, and natural disasters are a a good example here that if you don't know what you can do and you have to go find a lawyer to give you a ruling on something, you can see that when you're in the middle of a crisis, it's not a good time to seek legal advice because it could take weeks to get an answer. And so that's why we need some of these kinds of decisions Resolved in a better way in advance.
0: But now let's get back to the original question about big and small companies.
2: Yeah. So the, the the big company bought a little company, and the little company had a privacy policy that says we'll never disclose information to anybody ever. And the big company came to me and said, "Well, we just bought this company. How can we take their records? How can they disclose the records to us? We're the new owners because of their privacy policy, um, and there seemed to be impossible for them." to do this. And what we came up with, and it was a particular kind of a list of individuals in a business context, they ended up sending a notice to everybody and said, uh, here's what's happened. You know, big, big company has now taken over this little company and they want to use your records in the usual way and ask people if that was okay. And they did it with consent. So that was a solution to that problem that allowed people to say, no, we don't want our records to be used.
0: So, Bob, there are disasters that, you know, may affect more than than one country. And there may be people on both sides who care about people internationally. So if it's an international problem, what special problems arise from that?
2: Well, in the United States, it's really not much of an issue. Again, it's the same pattern where we don't have any restrictions. But in Europe, they regulate the export of personal data to third countries because the the policy here is that if we have a privacy law in our country and we allow our information to be exported to somewhere else, we'll lose all the privacy protection. So they regulate the export of data. And disasters always require sharing of information across national borders, because either the organizations that are doing the work may be based in another country or You may have more than one country affected by the disaster, or even in in the case of the New Zealand uh, earthquake, um, there were people living in New Zealand who had relatives elsewhere. They may have been travelers. They may have been students. They may have been people uh, who moved out of New Zealand uh, to other countries but still had relatives there. And this is a particularly uh, challenging problem because under European laws, for example, exports are regulated, and it's the same issue about trying to meet the standards for export so that in order to export data, it has to be necessary or legally required. That's one of the standards in Europe. And it's not clear just from those words whether data exports in natural disasters for missing persons purposes meet that standard. We think that it does, but we think there should be more clarity and more official recognition of the problem so that everybody can feel comfortable that these kinds of data transfers are lawful.
0: I want to thank Robert Gelman, a privacy consultant in Washington. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and information with us, Robert.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'd like to thank my guest, Bob Gelman, WFUV's Rob Palazzolo, and my senior producer, Alan Candlin. Stay tuned. George Bodarki and CityScape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.